Well, good morning, church. I hope you all are enjoying the beginning of October. Can you believe it? It's unreal. Here we are, and, and we're in the 10th month of 2020, and it can't finish soon enough. Am I alone in that? Uh, ready to start 2021 as soon as possible. But at the same time, there's been a lot to be thankful for for 2020 and a lot of great things that have happened in the midst. It's the first Sunday for us, not just of October, but for the first time in a long time that we won't be preaching from Ephesians. We have finished. Hallelujah, right? Amen. Uh, I loved that series and enjoyed having an opportunity to walk through it with you all, but I'm equally excited to see where we're going. And before we, we start a new series this morning, let me just kind of remind you a little bit of what we've done this whole year, because not all of you have been with us this whole year. And, and there's been a progression that we've intentionally been following. And so when we started this year off in January, we actually began with a look at the life of Moses. We looked at Exodus 1 through 4. And we were looking at the birth of Moses, the calling of Moses, but we were really doing so with the intentionality of, of seeing this, this juxtaposition, this contrast between the power of mankind and the power of God, right? The power of mankind as it's personified through Pharaoh and how different that is. Our understanding of power and our pursuit of power in, in humanity is often very different than what we see in the power of God. And so we, we were kind of introduced to the qualities of the power of God through that journey. Now that led us into the season of Lent, which is when we began Ephesians. In the first half of Ephesians is really about being reminded of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, right? The, the impact of the gospel, that we've been blessed in the, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And we complemented that journey in Lent with a Lenten devotional, if you remember. And, and that Lenten devotional took us through the gospel of Luke. And the, the governing question during that season of Lent was, what does my personal relationship look like with Jesus? How have I personally responded to uh, all that God has done for me in Christ Jesus? How do I see that in my life? And that's what led us to kind of that climactic explanation and that climactic moment uh, uh, in Ephesians 3 that we got to celebrate together on Easter Sunday, literally preached on the rooftops because of the pandemic and did a drive-in service where we once again kind of looked at that moment where it says God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine and celebrated the power that, that we find in Christ Jesus. Now, the second half of Ephesians is where we picked up after Easter and really kind of had an opportunity to look at what was going on in the life of the church, right? Because when you get to chapters four through six, it's really about how does the community respond to this gospel, right? And we see Paul urging the, the church to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And that's where you get this this very thoughtful and practical exposition in the second half of Ephesians that tells us to pursue unity and maturity and to take off the old self and put on the new self, right? To, to walk in the way of love, to live as children of light, to stand strong in the Lord, all these things that we've been talking about for the last several months. And it's, it's ultimately, this is how you function as a community, as a church, right? And so we, we ended that discussion last Sunday with that call towards encouragement, to encourage one another, to bless one another. And so the progression then is that when you think about living that out and fostering that within a community of faith and beginning to encourage each other as such, it's going to naturally spill over into the community and into the world, which is really going to be our focus in October and November. How do we take all those things right, this opportunity to understand the power of God, see how it's working out in our lives, to then see how it's beginning to be manifest within our, our community or within our church so that we can then have that impact on the community in the world. This should start sounding familiar to you, 
right? Because this is the prayer of UBC. This is what we continually come back to and pray about over and over and over again, that God's power would be unleashed in our lives, that it would be unleashed in this church, in this community, in this world. Why? So that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. And so there's, there's a method to our madness. There's a reason we've been, we've been progressing this way. And so having this very intentional year-long journey to understand the power of God, how it's working in our lives, how it's working in our church, now in October and November, we say, okay, how do we take it to our community and our world? And that's gonna be how we begin to, to govern our time and navigate our time. And so how are we gonna do it? What's gonna be our guide? We're gonna use the Gospel of Matthew and we're gonna camp out in Matthew chapter 10. So grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew 10 if you want to right now. Uh, We're not gonna read it quite yet, but this is gonna be where we hang out. We're gonna look at a moment where Jesus literally sends his disciples out into the community. Now, a lot of times when you think about Jesus commissioning his followers in in the Gospel of Matthew, you think about Matthew 28, you think about that great commission. And and that's obviously a a justifiable uh, part to consider. But the reality is, is that Jesus was incorporating his followers and his believers to go out into the community and be a part of his ministry from the very beginning, right? It It was woven within everything that he was doing. And so in chapter 10, we see the first moment that he actually sends his disciples out. And it becomes kind of a emblematic or a representation of not just what the first 12 disciples are gonna do, but really what the church is called to do. And so it becomes a great template and a great lesson for us even today. Now, before we read Matthew chapter 10, I think it's very important for us to understand the context within which it emerges. And so I wanna take a moment to just kind of cap, uh, I guess, kind of uh, summarize, I guess, or, or highlight some of the key points of, of the first nine chapters. And so if you want to follow along, if you've got your scriptures right there, anyone just kind of thumb around, there are some key themes that I want to make sure that we identify in these first nine chapters. Anytime you look at a gospel, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that the first part is typically going to cover the birth. Not all of them, but, but a lot of them will. And Matthew is definitely one of, those, one of those gospels. And so the first two chapters of Matthew, we have an understanding of the genealogy and the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, right? God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. When you get to chapter three, we have the preparation for Jesus's ministry with the stories of the baptism of Christ, as well as the temptation of Christ. And when we were talking through the armor of God, and we were talking about the devil's schemes and and the flaming arrows of the evil one, we went back to the temptation story using Matthew four as somewhat of a guide, or three as somewhat of a guide to to kind of remember and, and learn what are the devil's schemes? How does that work? So we've, we've already kind of revisited that section of the gospel not too long ago. But once Jesus is tempted, once he goes through all that, we then get kind of to the beginning of his ministry in chapter four. And in the announcing of his ministry, we see Jesus's message that he is proclaiming to everywhere that he goes. And what is that message? It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message, church. That's the message of Christ. It's the message for the disciples. It's the message for us today. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now, Jesus validates and substantiates that claim through power, right? Through miracles, through working of wonders. What does he do? He starts driving out impure spirits. He starts healing uh, diseases and doing all these different things. And as he moves throughout Galilee and he moves throughout this region, everyone begins to bring their sick, their, their uh, 
broken, their pain, all these different things. And he begins to heal all of them. And news about this Jesus spreads everywhere. And so all of a sudden we're told there at the end of chapter four that large crowds begin to gather around Jesus. And so with the large crowds gathering, Jesus sits on a mountainside and begins to teach. Now don't miss the significance of that because Matthew's presenting it to us that way for a reason. When somebody sits, that they're taking a position of authority. They're taking a position of, of power, of credibility, so to speak. And the fact that he is teaching on a mountainside kind of conjures up this image and this understanding of Moses, right? Because Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, now we have Jesus who's about to, to teach all these new understandings of the law and what it means to follow him. And we get the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it's this incredible teaching that goes through a variety of different subjects, that goes through a variety of different considerations, the Beatitudes, what it means to be salt and light, understanding murder and adultery, divorce, oaths, uh, judging others, prayer, fasting. I mean, you name it, it is all in there. And he, he has this incredible teaching that he ends in chapter seven by saying, anyone who listens to these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder. Right, someone who builds their life as a house upon a rock so that when the winds come and the rains pour, that house remains standing. It's an incredible, incredible teaching. And listen, here's a key verse. Listen to what people say when he's done teaching. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he was so charismatic, because he was so funny. He had great jokes that he wove into his sermon, because he was entertaining, right? Because the music he chose was great. No, they were so amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law, right? So what stood out to Jesus, what stood out about Jesus to his people was his authority, Right? And so now you move into chapter eight and we have more healings, we have more miracles, but now it's kind of uh, brought in the, the world of the natural order because there's this moment where Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and this, this storm comes and his disciples are literally terrified. It wasn't just like a little bit of rain. It was like a very serious storm. And so they're looking at Jesus who's asleep and they're thinking, how is he sleeping? And so they wake him up and he gets up and he says, be still and everything settles and his disciples turn to each other and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And it's almost as if Matthew is introducing to us a central question for the whole gospel. Who is this man? And knowing that that's kind of the central question, the next story begins to answer. Yes, more healings, more miracles, but now a healing of a paralytic. And what's interesting about this healing is that before anything happens in the physical world, Jesus turns to the paralytic and he says, your faith has healed you, your sins are forgiven. Now that was shocking. And everyone in the proximity of hearing this began to think in their own minds, who is this man that thinks he has the authority to forgive sins? And knowing their thoughts, knowing that they thought it was blasphemous, Jesus says, well, what's easier? Right, that I would say your sins are forgiven or that I would turn to him and say, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. The man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, 
They were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to a man. And so from there, Jesus continues, right? More healings, more miracles, more proclamation of the kingdom. And at the end of chapter nine, we get this diagnosis almost from Jesus, this assessment where he says the harvest is plentiful. It's almost like he's seen it, right? As he's going out into all these different areas and he's seen the response and he's seen the kingdom proclaimed and these miracles being performed, Jesus himself is letting everyone know, listen, the harvest is plentiful, but what? But the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers. Even Jesus himself knew more people had to be sent. And that's what leads us to Matthew chapter 10. So let's follow along. We're gonna look at just the first eight verses today. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Of these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely. You have received, freely give. That's where we'll stop today. And uh, we've got a lot just to, to look at just in those first eight verses. But this entire chapter is going to be what we kind of focus in on over the next several weeks through the months of October and November. Now, one of the things that I'll say about today's message is you got that paragraph there that lists all the different disciples. And it's really the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that all of them are identified. We're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time focused in on those names, their stories, their backgrounds. What we're looking at today is really the verses that precede that paragraph and the verses that follow it. And, and we're going to take a look at all those things. And, and there's quite a bit, even just in these first eight verses, several things that I want us to take note of. And, and so we're just going to kind of walk through it on, on that progression and in the order that it's presented to us. And so the first thing that you see is that Jesus calls his disciples together and he does what? He gives them authority. There's that word. There's that theme that I was intentionally pointing out in the recap of the first nine chapters, that Jesus's ministry was consistently marked with authority, right? It, it was marked with that description. And so now that he's sending out his disciples to continue in this ministry, what does he give them? He gives them authority. So what does that mean? Right, so authority, obviously in the most fundamental definition, is the authority to rule, to govern on some level, the ability to, to do something. Right? That's, that's the, the definition of it. Another way that we might describe it is power. Right? If you have authority to rule, you have a certain level of power. Jesus was teaching with authority, healing with authority, and now that he sends out his followers, he gives them authority. Now, what's interesting is, is that here, that authority is, authority is described as being able to drive out impure spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. So when we read that, the natural question becomes, okay, is, is that true for us, right? Is that how we should understand this? Is this the mark of authority for any believer? 
of Christ that we should all be able to go out and drive out impure spirits and heal every sickness and disease? Well, let, let's break it down for a moment. The first, first the thing that I wanna point out is that it absolutely is what the disciples meant or what the disciples understood Jesus to mean. This was not Jesus speaking in uh, parable or metaphor. He was literally meaning, go drive out impure spirits and heal every sickness and disease. So Matthew's readers would have known that. Matthew's readers would have understood that. Now, the reason he was telling them to do that was to validate his authority, to validate that the kingdom of heaven was near. Now, you and I, on this side of the cross, as well as Matthew's readers, we have something else to point to, don't we? Right, that the ultimate thing that Jesus did to demonstrate the authority that he had and that the kingdom was here was what? It was the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. There is no greater miracle, no greater act to point to, to demonstrate the authority of Christ and the presence of his kingdom. Right? And so that becomes the central message for the disciples and for Matthew's readers and for us today. So no, it does not mean that every single one of us are literally gonna be sent out with the ability to drive out impure spirits and heal every sickness and disease, right? We go out proclaiming the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, okay? But it does mean it can happen. It does mean it does happen. It is a gift that has been entrusted to the church. If you look at other parts of scripture and you look at the giftings that are entrusted to the body of Christ, absolutely it happens. I've seen it, I've experienced it. I'm telling you, it absolutely happens. And so while we don't need to carry the personal expectation that all of us will be able to do it, we absolutely should trust and know that it does happen while all of us collectively maintain that the main message is the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Does that make sense? So, so the question then for us though then becomes, what does it mean if Jesus has sent you then with authority? What does that look like? What does it mean that he has sent you with authority and, and how do you live that out? What does that look like practically? How is the power of Christ on display in your life? Well, I think it can manifest itself in a number of different ways, but, but a couple that I would suggest to you at least this morning is that number one, any sort of demonstration of Jesus's authority has to include some sort of posture of submission, right? Anytime you encounter power, you have to submit to it, right? And so essentially what we're saying is, is that if I'm sent with the authority of Christ, I'm recognizing the power of Christ in my life. I am being sent with the proclamation that in my life, Jesus is Lord, right? So Jesus is Lord needs to be more than a catchphrase that we offer during a baptism. It needs to be a lifestyle is it for you? Every moment, every day, every season, every opportunity, you are demonstrating with your life the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he has authority over everything about who you are. That's number one, demonstrating the lordship of Christ. Now, number two, what I would tell you is that it should embolden us, church. Man, we have been sent with the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the name above all names. And so following Jesus should be one of the most courageous, most adventuresome, most risky things that you could ever do with your life, right? To be bold and to trust in that authority and to trust in that power. Don't you think the disciples are sitting there going, you want me to do what? But they believed it and they were courageous and they stepped out in faith. Do you? 
right? When our lives become hesitant and timid and comfortable, part of the reason is possible because we have lost sight of the authority that Christ has given us, right? So he sends us with authority. And we need to demonstrate that authority by recognizing his lordship and living that uh, courageous lifestyle that he's called us to live. Now, he doesn't just give authority, right? You, you see the list of the names after that, but then he gives us something else. He gives us instructions. And, and the word instructions to me kind of loses the weight that it should carry, kind of loses the significance and the meaning that, that should probably be assigned to it. Because I don't know about you, instructions in my mind are something that come in a box when you open up a toy or like an appliance. You know what I mean? And, and for me, I don't like that idea because there have been numerous seasons of my life where I've actually opened up said package and tried to put together said toy without looking at the instructions, right? It's almost like a boastful thing, like, aha, didn't even need the instructions. You know what I mean? And, and so as a result, instructions become somewhat optional. A lot of times we have this mindset that we are more accomplished if we can go on our own and figure it out for ourselves. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times that's how we view Christ. Right, it's, it's this piece of paper, this, this option in a box that we'd rather go through life trying to figure it out on our own first. And then maybe when we get into a bind or into a jam, maybe then we'll consult what his words might mean and what we might need to consider. That's not at all what is taking place here. Instructions means command. It's an order. Now, if you hear that word, you think differently, right? You think about a superior speaking to someone who is inferior Right? And that a command and an order cannot really be questioned. It is about obedience. It's about recognizing that sort of authority and that sort of role that that person has in your life. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus has commanded them. Here's how you're going to be sent out. And so the details of these instructions are pretty significant. And, and we need to give great consideration to, to the details of them. And that's what we're going to be kind of breaking down over the next, next several weeks. But I want to at least get us started this morning. Because the first instruction, the first command, is pretty interesting. He, he actually offers a word of restriction, right? He actually tells them what not to do. Hey, I'm sending you out, but don't go to the Gentiles. And, and don't go to the surrounding towns of Samarians and, and visit with the Samaritans. Don't, don't go any there. Instead focused on the lost sheep of Israel. It's kind of an interesting beginning to being sent out, isn't it? I think it is for us because a lot of times when we think about the gospel and we think about where, where Jesus has sent his church and sends his followers, a lot of times we see this to be worldwide and should, right? We, we see that to be, to be universal. There are no restrictions. Go everywhere, speak to everyone. And in fact, that is exactly where Jesus is going to ultimately lead his followers. Even later in chapter 10, in verse 18, you see a reference to the Gentiles that gives us a clue that there is actually a time where this message will receive them. You finish out the gospel, you get to the Great Commission, go into all the world, right? Teaching and, and baptizing, all those different things that we see related to the Great Commission. But in this moment, he specifies and restricts where the disciples can go. Now, why is that? Uh, there are a couple of things that I would point out just for us to understand. The reason he restricts and, and focuses them in on the nation of Israel, to me, is a way for us to understand God's faithfulness to the original covenant. In, in original covenant, I'm talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? That he was going to call for himself a people, the nation of Israel, that were going to be his own. And Jesus was first and foremost Israel's Savior, knowing that the plan would be that that would turn into being the savior for the world. 
And so Jesus was not plan B. It's not like, well, everything fell apart with Israel, so now I'm gonna send Jesus and we'll do everything else. No, this was always his plan and this was part of the original covenant. And so this is a demonstration of God's faithfulness to that covenant. We're looking at a particular moment in salvation history before the cross where God is demonstrating his continual love for Israel, knowing what's about to unfold. So that's why there's a focus. Now, what does that mean for you and me? What lessons do we learn from these restrictions? I would, I would say that there's several things for us to consider. The first is that it's actually good that when Jesus sends us out for us to be focused, right? That we don't think about every opportunity, every conversation, every scenario that might be before us, that sometimes we have to focus in our efforts. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. I'm not talking about just dealing with the busyness of your life, although that is good life advice, right? Don't spread yourself too thin. That's true all the time and that focus carries a certain benefit to it. I'm talking about actually doing what Jesus is sending them to do, which is proclaim the good news of the kingdom and make disciples, right? Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to get more workers to be sent into the harvest field. So he's sending his disciples to do what? Go and make disciples, which is why you get from 12 to then him sending out the 72. And then by the great commission, he's got what, 120, right? So this was a multiplying effect. So he's sending them out to make disciples. And so what does that look like for you and me, right? This is not a sort of focus where you just say, well, I'm too busy in life, I just need to do a few things. This is about how you pursue making disciples in your own life. And I believe that requires focus, right? And, and this is a lesson that I kind of learned almost by experience and by failure and trial and error. And I've shared part of my testimony with you all at different parts of these four years that I've been here, but let me just kind of cap on or recap a few of these points that to me were very important life lessons, right? Because about seven years ago, probably somewhere in that neighborhood, I realized that this was not something I was doing as intentionally as I should have, right? I knew about it. I, I studied it. I taught on it, all this other stuff, but I don't know that I was actively seeking to go into areas of lostness and lead people to Jesus and make disciples the way that I should. And so I repented of it. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to I'm gonna go and I'm gonna try to have these conversations. And I did, and I had no idea what I was doing. Found people that knew what they were doing and they mentored me and I learned from them and it was awkward and it was uncomfortable and it was incredibly exciting all at the same time. And it was life-changing. And we would go and we would have conversations with people anywhere. We'd have conversations with people in restaurants. We'd have conversations with people in gas stations, at the mall, you name it. And it was amazing to discover what? The harvest is plentiful. The people actually want to have those conversations, despite what you might think. The people are actually interested in hearing about Jesus. And it was convicting. I'll never forget the first time I had a conversation with a young man that was a UTA student working at the mall. We shared the gospel with him. When we finished, I asked him, have you ever heard that before? And he looked at me and with all sincerity said, no, I've never heard it. And I thought, man, in the world of Google and in the world with churches on every street corner, people do not hear this message. The church cannot be silent and it ignited something within me. We have to share this message. And so we would, and we would go and we'd share. And you know what I discovered? The harvest was plentiful and it was overwhelming because every conversation required more relationship, more time, more investment. And honestly, it wasn't feasible. 
And so what I discovered several years into this process and what I would put in front of you today is that when we think about making disciples, we need to do more with fewer rather than doing less with more. Does that make sense? So you find not the masses in your life, not everyone you meet, not every relationship that you encounter that you have to go share the gospel in every moment, in every situation. Listen, the spirit prompts, do it. But who are the two to three? Who are the two to three people in your life that you know are far from God, that God is sending you to them, that you would pour into them, that you would invest, that you would have that focus. Don't worry about every Samaritan town, every Gentile, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Who are the lost sheep in your life that Jesus is sending you to? That's where it starts. The other thing I think we see with these restrictions is trusting in God's timing, right? And that's really hard for us especially when we think about where God is sending us and what the responsibility to go to the community. Because a lot of times we have these visions, we have these dreams, we have these ideas, and we want them to happen according to our timing, not his. And we love immediate results. We love self-gratification, don't we? But the reality is, is that God has his own timing. He had timing for the Gentiles. He had a plan for Samaria. Wasn't time yet. That was later. So our job is to be faithful in that present moment. And that absolutely works with discipleship, right? Because what are we called to do? We're called to go sow seeds, right? We go and we sow the seed of the kingdom. We go and we plant that seed in the lives of people that need to hear it. And then we trust in God's timing, but we don't stop sowing just because it doesn't meet our expectations, right? Like my, my wife loves plants, they're everywhere in our house, and they, they add to the decor. She's got this cool garden going on in our driveway. She just planted something recently, and we've been talking about the excitement of seeing these little pumpkins bloom and develop, right? And yet we know we have to wait, right? So imagine if she planted seeds, and she came in one day, and she goes, man, I planted all this cool stuff. Can't wait for them to all develop tomorrow. And then she walks out the next day. None of them have bloomed, and she's like, well, this doesn't work. This is, I can't handle this kind of rejection. I'm done being a gardener. You'd go, uh, it's not really how it works, right? You plant and then you tend and then it grows on its own. That's our responsibility. We never stop sowing the seed and we tend the soil within which we plant it. Whatever heart, soul, and mind God has led you to, you care for, you love, you nurture, but you let God's timing take over. There's a lot to be learned from just in that one bit of instruction that calls us to focus and to trusting in his timing. A couple other quick things that I want to hit on. He then gives them the specificity of the message, right? It's not just here specifically where you're going, but here specifically what I want you to say. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now, he, he adds again the signs that are going to validate this message, that you're going to heal, that you're going to raise from the dead, that you're going to cast out demons, you're going to cure all these sicknesses, right? All those things we've already talked about, and same lesson applies Right? Our ultimate validation of the kingdom of heaven is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Yes, these things happen. It is no, not the expectation that every single one of us are going to be able to do it. Okay? But he sends them out, and the central message is proclaim the good news of the kingdom, right? that the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the proclamation. And so the question for you and I becomes, well, what does that look like for, for us? How do we do that in today's context? How do we declare the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near? And the first thing I would tell you is that you have to believe it. Do you? And I don't mean like, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins. 
Do you believe that the kingdom of heaven is near? That this promise that Jesus is going to return and make all things new, that that moment is near, that every single one of us are a breath away from standing before our King. Do you believe that? Do you live your life with that sort of focus, with that sort of urgency, that sort of understanding and perspective? That's the first thing we have to do is believe it. Now, when we do, how do we present it in a way that is understandable and contextual for our society and our culture today? Several things that we've talked about before. I won't go into all the details today, but just a reminder, when we engage with folks seeking to try to share this hope, this good news, we have to listen. We have to listen to people's stories. We have to listen to what God's doing in their life. We have to earn the right to be heard. And you do that by listening and caring and being sincere and being genuine and understanding where they are in life. And then once we listen, we advocate for truth. Not, not a false sense of peace, which in today's world often says, you know what, here's my truth, you have your truth, and we'll just kind of agree to disagree. No, we believe that there's actually truth and that truth is good for all of us. And truth needs to be advocated and needs to be fought for, even if that means hard conversations that aren't popular. But you have those conversations in love, you have those conversations in sincerity, you have those conversations in compassion, and you use the words of the gospel. We can't just nice people into the kingdom, right? We can't just be super friendly and hope that in some mysterious way they're gonna hear about Jesus. No, we actually tell them about Jesus. So if you're sitting there and you're going, I don't know how to do that, that sounds kind of weird and complicated and overwhelming, good. Join the crowd, it's true for all of us. That's part of what we do in discipleship groups. How do we do this? How do we do this well? What's working? What's not? But absolutely, we have to proclaim this news. We have to be courageous. We have to go into darkness. We don't just sit here and wait for people to walk in our doors. We go to them. I've told you before, based on estimates and, and studies, we believe at least 10,000 people within two and a half miles would say they don't believe in God of this campus. Our strategy is not to wait for them to just come up and talk to us. We go to them. We live courageously. When God leads you into a particular passion, be it fighting for the oppressed, fighting for the orphan, fighting for the window, fighting for the prisoner, whatever it is, man, we go courageously and doing all of that collectively demonstrates that we are ones who are sent with authority. And we proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near because we believe it. And that's what we're living out. And so with, with all of that described, Jesus then gives us this mindset that I think really helps govern all of it, which is how I'll try to wrap us up, right? He, he gives us this, this kind of transitional verse. It's a verse that really helps, I think, encapsulate part of what he's already mentioned in these first instructions and also kind of sets the stage for what we're going to be looking at next week. He says, freely you have received, so freely give. And I absolutely love that, right? Because it challenges a human instinct challenges a human impulse. And what is that instinct and that impulse? That human instinct and that impulse is to ask ourselves, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? What do I, what do I gain? What do I benefit? That, that's a common human consideration. And so when we think about being sent, when we think about submitting to the authority of Christ, there is kind of this subconscious question in the back of our minds that says, yeah, okay, I'll do that, but... What's in it for me? 
right? And so we often evaluate our whole pursuit of God's call. We evaluate what we, yeah, Lord, I'll, I'll give you my life. I'll, I'll go and leave my job. I'll do all these things, but what am I gonna get in return, right? A lot of times it's even how we choose church, right? Was the, was the preaching good enough? Was the music good enough? Or the people there nice enough? Can I find my friends? And, and listen, those are all justifiable and, and well-reasoned questions. They're just not the only questions. And if those become the determining questions with which we govern our lives, then we have lost this mindset that Jesus is challenging. This gospel, this kingdom is a gift. And you have received it freely by grace. And it is to be given away. It is not to just be consumed and hoarded for your own self-gratification. It is meant to strengthen you, to heal you so that you can then be sent out and give it away to strengthen and heal others. Freely, church, you have received. So freely, let us give. And that's how we're sent out. So, so what does that look like for you and me today? What does it look like if we begin to truly live according to this authority, understand these commands as he's given them in such a way that we have that focus, we trust in his timing, we proclaim this message, and we do so with this mindset? What does it look like? That's how I want us to end. I want us to actually picture what it might look like. I want us to give thoughtful consideration in our own lives, how this may begin to take shape. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I'm going to join you, and I want us to just give thoughtful consideration to what this would look like. And I want you to start with your own heart, your own soul, your own mind. And what would it look like for God to continue to set your heart ablaze? To, to set you free from any struggle, any hardship, any pain, but to ignite something within you that truly tastes and sees and understands the power and the authority he has entrusted to you. Imagine that healing. Imagine that passion, imagine that courage consuming you. And then I want you to think of just one or two people, one or two people in your life that you know are far from God. Could be a colleague, it could be a family member, could be a fellow student, could be a neighbor, someone in your life that you know is far from God. I want you to picture their face. And I want you to imagine you sitting down and talking with them, listening to them. I want you to anticipate sharing the hope of this kingdom with them and imagine them being overwhelmed with joy because they receive what it actually is. It is good news. Picture those people in your life experiencing that transformation, experiencing that heart change. Imagine them being baptized. <laughs> Imagine them wanting to be on this journey to follow you, 
as you seek to follow Christ. That you have an opportunity to pour into them and invest in them and walk with them. And then imagine if we all did that collectively. <laughs> that every single one of us began to truly do that, that we wouldn't just see one or two baptisms from our own personal experience, but collectively as a church, we would see hundreds. We'd see lives changed. Imagine the, the impact that it would have on this community as we all collectively go and declare this good news and we, we go to seek to heal and to love in ways that we best know how today, that, that poverty would begin to be alleviated. Imagine the moments where prisoners would be encouraged. Imagine those moments where orphans would find homes with families in this church and we would celebrate that together. Imagine widows being cared for, nurtured and loved. Imagine a people who live every day with that mindset, mindful of his grace that we have received freely and we are anxious to give just as we have received. And I believe what we would all see is the power of God truly being unleashed in our lives, in our church, our community, in our world. And we would be able to marvel at tangible expressions of every tongue, tribe, and nation coming to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. Let that be our prayer. Father in heaven, Send us, Father, whatever hesitations, whatever concerns, whatever uncertainties any of us may carry in this moment, God, I pray that you would set our hearts ablaze. Father, that you would take our lives and help us to dedicate them to you in every capacity, in every way. Father, that our lives would be an act of worship. Father, that you would truly help us to understand exactly what it means to be entrusted with the authority and the power that you have given to your church. Let us make you known in every arena and in every circumstance that you had seen us. Help us, that you would send us, help us to declare the good news of this kingdom fearlessly as you would have us to do so. Father, we thank you and give you praise that we have freely received this gift from you. Help us to freely give. We love you, Father. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.